Letter 7 I used to hate foreigners because they know fuck all English. The trouble is is foreigners can't talk because nobody taught them how. What my fake dad made Jenny whatever think while she was at his beck and call was that this was good enough reasons to hate every last one of them. Nowadays, Marley Godwin has no truck with such bollocks. She knows to look at foreigners as they come and go, and not all at once. Even so, the past ain't changed too much. Jenny Whatever might be dead, but she ain't forgotten. Her memories go on and on. Here's a question for you. Can I get Pete Pissflaps banged up for what he done to Jenny Whatever, even though I ain't Jenny no more? Because that bloke needs legal comeuppance, as well as the other kinds. What if he's in hospital? Is that a defense if the prick can't breathe well enough to shove him in prison for his legal comeuppance? I suppose he's dead of his pulmonary issues by now. Not dead enough. Why is it that the one voice you could fucking strangle is the one you need to listen to the rest of your life? To this day, I can hear the way my fake dad coughs in my head. It's like a spoon hitting a plate. When I sit in the chapel, nothing bothers me, unless it's the wheezy prick in my brains banging on about how foreigners multiply quicker than English, and that's more reasons to hate them. Luckily, when the good Lord turns up and takes a pew, Pete Pissflaps slips down his dark hole, and he won't come out till the coast is clear. Why I went to the chapel the other day was to ask the Almighty about how I should tell you what happens next. The Lord answered my prayers thus. He told me to tell you what makes me want to scream out loud. You might not want to know what makes me want to scream out loud, but our Father who art told me to tell you this. You can't know what you don't want to know, not unless you already know it. So behold, what gets me crimson is how the nonce calling himself my fake dad child molested me whenever he liked. He done this while the brainless shit with curlers in her hair he called his missus looked the other way. Did the social lift a finger? Fuck me, they paid him. Maybe to you, pissflaps and his crimes might be best forgotten about but I'm the one still hears him when he hawks his plasma in the room. To be scientific, what I got off my fake dad was post-traumatic stress disorder. This is highly catching. <laughs>
they give you meds for it. The meds make you dozy. What men in white will tell you is, if you don't take your meds, you take your chances. Trouble is, if the meds don't work no more, you're fucked. And when shit happens, thanks to your PTSD, even stalwarts like the mighty Zogs will lose their sensations of humor. God also made me tell you what made me swap Danny Zografoss and all his foreign luxury goods for a scummy life on the street again. It started with those pics of my sister I found inside my new laptop. This rattled me more than it could ever rattle you. Not unless you find a twin you've never seen before, which I fucking doubt. And it wasn't like it was pics of someone else I was looking at. I was looking at pics of me. I was seeing the life I could have lived. There I am, with my long brown legs and flashy smiles. There I am in places no one's never heard of. Me and my million lucky chums, we're slurping cocktails, we're sitting in jeeps with dust all over. Look at me now, the girl about town with my fine leather handbags swinging off my shoulder. There I am, kissing beardy blokes in nightclubs. There I am, waving from the insides of a black cab. All of a sudden, there I am, right in front of me, hopping and skipping through a London I could only ever dream about, or steal from. Which is to say, those pics of Scarly and her brilliant life, and all the likes and comments and clever asides people wrote about, was working something bitter and twisted in me. It was whirling my brains about. I didn't let it show. I kept it to myself. I couldn't tell the Zogs what I found inside my laptop, because it was too strange to talk about. Which was why he never knew the shitstorm just about to take chunks out of him. What it was was, I was ruminating. I done so much ruminating, the Zog said I weren't me no more. He kept asking and pestering about how mopey I looked. I fibbed. I told him I felt sublime. I told him I ain't never felt better. Now I had a new laptop to mess with my head. I know exactly what day it was when me and him tangled. It was the day when the bloke otherwise known as Prince took all his meds and died in a lift shaft. The Zogs was well broken up about this. I felt sorry for him. I'd never seen a bloke cry, so I tried giving him a blowjob. He looked disgusted. What are you doing? He said. He got snipey. He asked if a blowjob from the likes of me was going to make the bloke otherwise known as Prince come back to life anytime soon. That's when I told him how he was a slimy foreign tow rag, and for all I cared, he could fuck off back to Greenland or whatever fucking country he crawled out of. It wasn't me talking. It was my old PTSD. I swear, I was upside down when I said what I shouldn't have to my best beau ever. Before I knew what was happening, the voice of my fake dad was gushing out of my mouth like a burst mane. I suppose the Zogs could have given me a few black eyes then, like some would, teach me a lesson. But he never even touched me. 
That's not the way of high-class financiers. They don't need to slap you round if they hate you. That's beneath them. They're so rolling in it, they can just replace you. The Zog said he don't come from fucking Greenland. He's from fucking Greece, which I known all along. He says where he comes from, no one speaks that kind of spite out loud. Not in his land of birth. Not unless they're keen to start a fucking war. He makes me pack my things in plastic bags. He keeps his arms folded. He's tapping his foot. I'm begging him, but he won't let me take my mobile, nor my new laptop. He says he's keeping those for himself. I need the laptop, because it's got all my pics of Scarly in it. But the Zogs has lost his rag, and he was standing firm. I suppose I respected his hard Greek ways then. Because I left without abusing even one more single word against him. Which reminds me. When I was in the chapel, being told how to tell you everything what happens next, I decided I will make a solemn vow. No more filthy language. I know how much it grates on your sort. So from now on in, I shall fall silent on every French word that creeps round my bitter brain. And don't go thinking, like fuck you will. Pull the other one. Don't go saying, what about your promise to Frank Furness, how you will stop cussing and blinding in public places. You only have a minor point there. I know I cocked up. But you ain't Frank Furness. It's you I'm vowing it to now. That's the difference. You can sue me if I fuck up again. I will even take my good book in one hand and pen my true statement in the other so you can hold me to my word forever in the distant future. I, Marley Godwin, do solemnly swear on my double-crossed heart that while I tell you the rest of my sad fucking story, I will never utter not one other single foul word, so help me God, and may I burn in hell if I do. We talked about never being able to return to the people we left behind. This idea haunts me, so much so I've been writing about it. I still want to deny it. Perhaps I want to... S Perhaps I want to say that it's in the traces of what we've left behind that we can still grab at something familiar. Even if every part of the world can only be an impression of what it used to be, that may be just enough to warrant the urge to return that so many travelers have. Charlotte's return to Cambridge felt more like a fresh start. It seems she wanted to ignore the impressions or reminders that came with being back in her hometown. 
She had the funds to buy a reasonably sized semi-detached property, and once she'd moved in, she became absorbed in making it a home she could feel comfortable in. The cemetery, where her parents were buried, was only a short walk away. Louise told me that as far as she knew, Charlotte never went to visit the graves. Louise would come up from London most weekends. Because the distance between them was better established now, their relationship settled into a comfortable routine. It became a cathartic experience for both of them. Charlotte's healing was based on the sense that she'd dwelt for too long on the loss of her parents, so long that her outlook had been damaged. The time had come to look forward to life, she said, rather than mourn over it. The benefit of applying this balm was immediately apparent. Charlotte continued to drink, but perhaps less overtly. She even found it possible to write poetry again. There was only one family photograph on display in the new home. You'll understand the significance of that. It's rather like... It's rather like the one photograph your mother kept of me. In Charlotte's case, it was a small, faded Polaroid set in a red leather-bordered frame. It had been placed at the far end of a bookshelf in the lounge. The rest of the family snaps were hoarded away in albums in boxes she kept in the loft. The way this small Polaroid was positioned on the bookshelf, it would always be concealed by a smooth black stone. It was very likely the stone from Charlotte's school days that she'd kept all that time as a souvenir. The photograph behind the stone was of her parents. It was taken in 1993, when the Godwins went on a holiday to Scotland. Charlotte would always claim that her earliest years had been untroubled, but that didn't stop her fearing her memories. You had a good sense for this. She hadn't returned to the Highlands since, and couldn't help recalling the spectacular landscapes of that childhood journey with an unpleasant sensation, I would guess, more like foreboding than nostalgia. As we know, she featured in most of the photographs her parents had taken during the first nine years of her life. I was lucky enough to have been able to see many of these photos, still in Louise's possession. The most important album contained 12 Polaroid snaps from the Highlands holiday. After they lost contact, Louise came to cherish these photographs the most. They were mainly of Charlotte in a white dress, playing in the sand with a bucket and spade. She must have been about four at the time. In all of these photos, her mother is sitting in a deck chair, reading a broadsheet. She wore a loose brown skirt with a blue blouse. She had white socks on and robust leather walking shoes. In some of the photos, her mother's hair is being blown in the breeze. The deck chair next to hers is empty. Because of this, Louise imagined that Charlotte's father must have taken them. Charlotte didn't feature in the photo on the bookshelf. It was of her mother and her father, both sitting in their deck chairs. They were smiling, looking at the camera. The angle of the composition was slightly askew. It was a charming photograph and might have had a more prominent place in Charlotte's new home, but Louise didn't like to comment. She was sensitive to the fact that Charlotte had only recently begun to let her parents go. 
It was significant that she decided to display a family photo at all. The fact that it was mostly hidden by a large black stone hardly seemed to matter. There was to be a New Year's Eve party that would double up as a housewarming. In the run-up to the celebrations, Charlotte was full of excitement. She looked more beautiful than ever. She and Louise decorated her home with balloons and tinsel. They prepared party games and fun activities for 50 guests. The catering was managed by a restaurant. Charlotte wouldn't hear of skimping. That the party was a huge success is hardly surprising. Far too much alcohol was consumed. Louise reported that, on the whole, it was a happy, animated kind of drunkenness that Charlotte and her guests took part in that night. What was most intriguing to us about Louise's memory of this party concerned the Polaroid on the bookshelf. Any passing guest who happened to ask Charlotte about it found themselves being drawn down a labyrinth created to divert the conversation away from the subject of the photo. She would invite her inquisitive admirers to guess who had taken it. Her tone would become playful. She would suggest that a long-lost sister might have taken it. She said that as far as she knew, she didn't have any siblings, but there might well have been a forgotten sister. During the course of the night, she performed this as a kind of party piece a number of times with different guests. At the end of each performance, she would feign surprise by pretending to realize, as if spontaneously, that the Polaroid on the bookshelf must have been her very own first effort at photography, artfully attempted when she was just four years old. Because of its skewed perspective, it was believable that a child had taken the photograph. The heather and gorse, the blue sky behind her parents, and the white sand of what must have been the beach they were on were all at right angles to the couple sitting in their deck chairs. It gave the photo a comical, lopsided look. Charlotte's mother had removed her shoes and socks. They had been placed under her father's deck chair. She'd put her newspaper under her feet to stop it blowing away. Her father was sitting forwards in his deck chair. His right hand was outstretched, pointing at the camera, almost certainly telling the child taking the picture how to operate it. When they talked, the day after the party, Charlotte told Louise that she had no memory of taking this photograph. She remembered the camera well enough and the way the prints would roll out of the casing, white at first before magically turning into an image. She could recall the long drive to Scotland, They'd driven there in a green Volkswagen Passat. She could still picture herself in the back seat. She could even sense the faintly musty smell of the vehicle and recalled singing Row Your Boat as they drove along the motorway. Thinking of this memory again while she sat in her kitchen with Louise prompted a recollection of staring at the auburn hairs on the back of her father's head. There was a fear in this memory that he might have been angered by her singing. It was an unexpected flashback which caused Charlotte to laugh convulsively. This may have been a sign of trauma, but Charlotte shrugged it off. She told Louise that she carried on singing anyway just to provoke her father. 
When Louise asked if her father got angry, Charlotte manipulated the conversation, just as she had the night before with others. She began to talk about the photograph instead of the situation it might have represented. What seemed to fascinate Charlotte is the notion that there can never be a first time for anything. As she developed this theme in conversation with Louise, she began to insist that there can only ever be copies of things, so forgotten by now they can't be known in their original form. If this was anything, it was a leaf out of forgery of a young woman. It's what I've come to think of as another one of Charlotte's Frankenstein moments. As Louise listened, she began to worry that her friend was becoming over-animated. Charlotte was talking about how the proliferation of images through social media devalued life by fostering the mindless repetition of life's moments. It didn't matter what the pictures were of, she said. The moments they captured, because there were so many of them, could no longer be thought of as unique. Even if viewers could bring themselves to believe that the things happening in them were happening for the first time, they can't have been. They were happening over and over again. Like every step of a long walk. Charlotte was suddenly on her feet pacing the kitchen. She was saying that during her lifetime, a digital saturation of events had been unleashed on our civilization. For every image taken, there were millions just like it, just waiting to be downloaded. If there were no other photographs of people sitting in deck chairs on beaches, the Polaroid of her parents might have been worth something, she claimed, rounding on Louise as she made this strange point. The Polaroid now could only be thought of as part of an abundance of similar images, regardless of the fact that it had been taken by a four-year-old child who had never used a camera in her life. Charlotte's tone was too agitated for any of this to be regarded as normal conversation. Louise hoped to lighten the mood. She reminded Charlotte that only the night before she'd been implying it was a long-lost sister who'd taken the snap on the bookshelf. The mention of an imaginary sister only aggravated Charlotte. They'd been up all night. They'd spent much of the morning and early afternoon clearing the mess left by the revelers. Louise had been about to go back to London. It was mainly because of Charlotte's nervous turn that she'd lingered for longer than she might have. Charlotte went on to say that if it was difficult to cherish or value something about life before the turn of the century, when children had to fumble with clunky Polaroids to get their instant gratification, ever since then, the digital revolution had made it difficult to value anything. Every expectation, she complained, was held in some digital format, shared and gloated over, building a high wall that keeps imagination, change and chaos out. Now Charlotte saw her life as a parade. It was a procession of thousands of pictures squeezed into just a few decades. She seemed to become paranoid as she talked, actually looking over her shoulder 
whispering that all of those images were being stored remotely on servers of governments and corporate giants, so that power now was knowing what a person wanted or needed better than they did. Didn't that make Louise furious? Louise raised her eyebrows. She didn't feel furious, she said. It was Charlotte's notebook that revealed so many of the clues that led you to your answers. Well, this is the moment when she grabbed it and began to scribble down the words and phrases that captivated us. It was a moment you and I had no involvement in, and yet it would become the text that we would eventually meet and communicate in. Partly saying it, partly writing it down, Charlotte could only regret the parade of images that trailed in the wake of her life. It was a stream that propelled her forwards, as if there was no stopping it anymore. Each new foreground, she was saying between breaths, was populated by the same effusive friends. Even if they weren't the same friends, all of the images were the same. All of them were of upbeat expressions and poses, as if this would make any of it more interesting. It didn't. It helped to make the so-called parade more and more meaningless. Whether they were sitting on bar stools in Ibiza, paragliding over the Alps, or just standing on street corners in far-flung cities, the sad herd in Charlotte's mind was being forced to smile or wave or laugh or shriek because the pictures people took of it was all life was about anymore. Formed out of this very diatribe, we would begin to examine the edgy writings in Charlotte's notebook. They were written across a single page, headed New Year's Day 2017. Meanwhile, Louise's efforts to coax Charlotte back towards a lighter disposition had failed. She tried mocking Charlotte. How right you are, she said. Why are we so bloody happy? Charlotte ignored Louise. The quip may have put an end to her tirade, but she continued writing with an increasingly frantic hand. As Louise watched, she wrote the first lines of what might have become a new poem. The proliferation is too profound. No somber tones in digital streams. Those origins are dampened down, exhibiting nothing but their rampant flames. There was something else about the intensity of Charlotte's behavior that made Louise quietly desperate. It hadn't been lost on her that the news around the world that New Year's Day was of a fire that had swept through a hotel in Dubai. The flames were pictured in the media reaching high over the tip of a glass tower. The conflagration had obliterated the structure through the night while fireworks flickered around the rest of the city. Given the way Charlotte's parents had died, coupled with the erratic and one-sided discussion taking place, Louise realized that it would be a long time before Charlotte would ever really be able to carry her burden. When Charlotte looked up from her notebook, after a long while, she seemed to snap out of it. She was relaxed again. She spoke as if nothing unusual had happened. But as they walked towards Louise's car, she asked something strange. 
If I had a sister, what do you think she'd be like? You and I know what lay behind this question, but Louise didn't. She had no way of answering, other than to say she supposed any sister of Charlotte's might look something like her. Of course, this didn't satisfy Charlotte. She wanted to know what any sister of hers might be like. Louise recalls crafting her reply, saying something like, if this imaginary sister had enjoyed as many possibilities and opportunities as Charlotte, she could only think of such a woman as a pleasure to know. Charlotte nodded absently. Her expression remained distant. They held each other and kissed. It was the tender goodbye of lovers who knew each other well enough to be away from each other for longer spells. Louise felt better for their brief physical contact. But her confidence would soon be shattered. Even then, as they embraced, she knew nothing of the meeting Charlotte had arranged with the woman called Marley. Thank you.